Figured we'd just ask him every hard question we can think of and see if we can stress him out. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMind. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMind by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 88 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. I'm James Gray, and with me today are Avdi Grimm. Hello. Katrina Owen. Hello from Oslo. And Tony, is it Arcieri? Uh, Siri, but yeah, close enough. <laughs> okay. Um, Tony, this is your first time on the show, so uh, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Tony Arsiri. I work on the Cyber Liability team at Living Social, and I'm also the author of Celluloid, which is a uh, concurrent object-oriented programming framework for Ruby. So we asked him on the show to ask him a lot of XML questions. Yeah, awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Before we get to the show, uh, we do have a few announcements. Um, First of all, uh, I think the last time I hosted a show because Chuck was gone, we had our first uh, official, unofficial rogue that we announced then. And now that I'm hosting another show, we have another one. So it's Adam Robbie. Um, so Adam, thank you very much for your support of the show. We appreciate you. Another announcement is that everybody and their dog has been bugging us to make it possible to sign up to Parlay without PayPal. And Chuck has done that. So... You can go to parlay.rubyrogues.com and uh, you can sign up there using a credit card through Stripe. So Yay, Stripe. Yay, Stripe. Yes, this is very good. And I think that's it for announcements. So today we thought we would discuss concurrency in general and probably uh, celluloid uh, more specifically since we have Tony here to pick his brain. So... Um, Tony, why don't you give us like a rough overview, maybe of the maybe the history of of Ruby's concurrency? Uh, well, if you started pre one nine, you might remember the dark ages where uh, there were only green threads, and the big problem there is let's see, you have a thread doing a system call, right? So you have something calling out to your database, say, or something like that, right? Uh, since you have green threads, green threads mean they run inside the interpreter, right? So there's only one native thread. So as soon as any one of those green threads makes a system call, it would block the entire interpreter. So you could only do one system call at a time. And so kind of prior to one nine, uh, maybe multi-thread Ruby didn't make a whole lot of sense, right? <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, uh, in addition to that, IO would add a significant amount of overhead because it was kind of doing all this work to uh, sort of munge all your I.O. requests into a single uh, select system call there. So it used to be running more than one thread if they were both doing heavy I.O. would have a pretty significant performance overhead. We're talking like 20% here or something. So uh, eventually that all got fixed. One nine came out. Uh, every thread in 1.9 maps directly to a native thread 
at the uh, operating system level. So you can do multiple system calls at once. It's pretty awesome. Uh, there's still a global interpreter lock. So only one thread can be executing Ruby code at a given point in time. But uh, the, the good thing is you have, say, a multi-thread Rails app where several of your threads are trying to talk to the database at the same time. Uh, they can actually do that, and it works out pretty well. So uh, I'd say things have gotten better in the past few years, at least. So just to be clear, M M18, it did, even though, you know, it was effectively not parallel, so to speak, they, it did go through like kind of almost Herculean efforts to try to not sleep a thread while waiting on IO. Is that correct? Yeah, so long as you were doing uh, all Ruby code, right? So if all your IO is from Ruby, then yeah, it would... Uh has this really gnarly code about 10,000 lines into a val.c that looks at all the IO objects that every single green thread was waiting for and kind of puts them all together into uh, what's called an FD set for select. So you take that big list of file descriptors, you hand it off to the kernel, and the kernel will tell you which ones are ready to run. And then uh, the scheduler would just go through that and resume any thread that had an I.O. object that was ready to do I.O. So it kind of sort of worked. Uh, you know, if you've used New Relic on a 1.8 app, that's kind of what it's doing. It's running a thread in the background, uh, sending, you know, a bunch of diagnostic data to New Relic, and then your app is running in the main thread. So, yeah, I... I think this is kind of a sticking point for a lot of people understanding Ruby's threading model. So just to say it one more time in a, in a kind of a clarifying way is like in Ruby 1.8, if you split off two threads and then just did a bunch of math, then that doesn't happen in parallel, basically. What happens is it's quickly jumping back and forth between the two of them, but you're not going to like save time or anything because it, in fact, you should probably spend time because the thread context changes. But if you split up, like say, say you were writing an IRC bot, for example, and the bot needed to read from the, you know, socket to get all incoming data. And, but if you also did some work in, you know, another thread, like figuring something out, some response you were going to give, it's possible those could happen in parallel because at the time it was waiting on IO, it could switch to that other thread. Did I get that right? Yeah, definitely. And uh, what you were saying with, you know, trying to do math at the same time in two threads, like that's still a sticking point in 1.9 with the gill. But other than that, yeah, uh, either 1.8 or 1.9 can definitely do parallel I.O. operations. Uh, on 1.9, you can do some cooler stuff like uh, Crypto, for example, will release the global interpreter lock. So you could have several threads actually doing crypto at the same time. Because um, because now, basically, in one nine, it's any system call, right? Instead of just IO-specific stuff. Yeah, yeah. So one nine, since every uh, Ruby thread is backed by a native thread, uh, if you're doing any C extension, for example, like it doesn't have to be a system call per se. It can just be something that's working entirely in C land, independent of anything in Ruby land. 
and it can go crank away on something computationally intensive, uh, but it can release the global interpreter lock, so you can have stuff in Ruby land uh, running in parallel. How does um, like uh, multiprocessor systems, now that we have so many of those, uh, they still don't reap benefits from 1.9's architecture, right? Uh, that's pretty much the case, except in the example I just gave, where you have a C extension releasing the goal. So if you want to today, I believe you can do uh, like parallel uh, encryption and decryption with OpenSSL. I'm not actually 100% sure uh, there's a GIL unlock in place, but I know uh, Nahi, uh, if you're familiar with him, has been talking about doing that. So uh, is like, yeah, I mean, it's possible to do a little bit of parallel computation, but it has to be a C extension right now. So we've we've basically been talking about threading, um, but Ruby actually has another concurrency model that it picks up from Unix, right? You want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, so you're talking about the multi-process model, I assume. Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, so I mean, multi-process is how people have kind of traditionally done uh, parallelism with Ruby apps. So, you know, you have a Rails application, uh, you have a multi-core computer, uh, you know, so you run several copies of your app and uh, you get parallelism that way just because the OS is scheduling multiple processes. I mainly work on an app that works this way and, uh, there, you know, I think there's a lot of problems uh, just in terms of sort of like managing this app and uh, just in terms of the resources it uses where this isn't a particularly ideal setup. Um, so one of the main problems I see in Rails apps in general is, uh, you know, you kind of have this really fixed concurrency threshold that's entirely based on how many processes you can run, right? So if you're running 100 mongrels, 100 unicorns, whatever you want to call it, right, uh, you can only service 100 requests at once. And as soon as you hit that cap, you know, you've exceeded capacity right there. So, you know, a lot of these apps, it's probably pretty easy for, say, a attacker, you know, the hacker trying to uh, do a denial of service attack against your Rails app to exceed that concurrency threshold just because it's so low. So I think that's kind of a problem. <laughs> like, uh, I think uh, multi-threaded apps can be a lot more elastic in terms of what those limits are. That's a good point. Um, there are some kind of strengths to the, the process model, though, right? Like, for example, if I do have a multi-processor machine and I, I launch multiple processors, then obviously the the schedules scheduling is handled by the OS, so it's possible that those processes can end up on separate cores and I can take advantage of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's the easy way to do uh, multi-core with, say, 1.8 or 1.9 even, right? Right. And um, so to make it clear how why this model is sometimes used for servers, it has to do with how Unix handles things like... Um, file descriptors, right? Because a lot of times what they'll do is they'll launch some program and then like open a socket for accepting connections, say, and then fork a bunch of copies. And because they, they're pointed at that same socket, then when they accept, the kernel actually sorts out, you know, who gets a given request and ends up working on it, right? 
Yeah, it's a pretty traditional model known as a pre-fork server. So yeah, you can uh, share that listen socket across processes and uh, they all accept on it at the same time and then the kernel kind of does round robin as far as which process actually ends up uh, getting that incoming connection. Uh, on the other hand, you end up uh, sharing a lot of other file descriptors between processes like say you open connections to your database or uh, any other external service in your system, right? You have initializers that are maybe doing stuff that needs to set those connections up. Uh, then you fork. Uh, problem you have then is you end up with a lot of cleanup as far as uh, trying to shut those file descriptors down and reopen them because otherwise you have like a connection to your database shared between like end processes and that's uh, not going to work very well. So you know there are pluses and minuses to the whole file the share uh, file descriptor sharing aspect of uh, the multi-process model. That's a good point. So on processes versus threading, another huge trade-off, in my opinion, is like how easy it is to share data among those processes. Right? Threading is seems to be substantially easier to share data among those different units. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I believe there are uh, some libraries to use some of the Unix facilities for sharing stuff across processes, like uh, just things like System 5 Shared Memory, right, can actually share data between processes. And Python does this fairly successfully, I think, with its multi-processing library. But really, yeah, I mean, any of that is going to be a lot harder than just using threads where you have a single heap and it's really easy to just pass objects back and forth. Uh, it's also a bit of a double-edged sword because if it's easy to share state, uh, it's also easy to mutate that state too and you may end up uh, mutating some objects shared between threads and maybe you didn't want to do that right so right so when we're doing threading then the complication becomes doing things like synchronizing and stuff like that to make sure that the data is not being changed out from under us right yeah, definitely. And uh, one other alternative is uh, immutable state. So you just ensure that nobody can mutate any of these objects that have been shared. And uh, one of my picks is a library to do just that. So we can yeah, talk about that a bit later. Oh, we've talked a lot about um, what makes the take, taking advantage of threading hard. Could you say a little bit about what we'd have to do to take better advantage of threading? Uh, so I think celluloid helps with that quite a bit. You know, there are a lot of sort of traditional problems with building multi-threaded programs. Uh, like James said, synchronization is the big one. What you would normally do is use some sort of uh, synchronization primitive, like a semaphore, a monitor, a mutex, or a latch, or something like that to basically control uh, concurrent access to some of that state. So celluloid uh, makes that implicit. Uh, so with celluloid, you spin up uh, an actor or a cell, and all communication between that and the rest of the system between other actors or other threads is all automatically synchronized. So it's fairly easy to use, I think. We're still going to run into problems with the gill, though, right? Yeah, on one nine, if you're uh, trying to do parallel computation, it's just not going to work because 
the uh, the goal. It only lets you run one Ruby thread at a time. So, Tony, maybe this is a good time to ask you, why do we have the gill? I mean, we keep talking about how we run into it and it causes these problems. Why is it there and why haven't we gotten rid of it? Uh, well, the main reason I think it uh, hasn't been eliminated yet is because it's really hard. Um, <laughs> so Java originally started out with green threads and uh, made the same move from uh yeah basically a single thread a single native threaded model with multiple sort of virtual green threads to actual uh native threads that are running in parallel and that's a really hard move to make basically uh you take your gill and you have to break it up so you have instead of one big lock a bunch of tiny locks and if you really didn't plan on doing that ahead of time i think it's really really hard um you know, supposedly Koichi, who wrote Yarv, had a patch to uh, 1.9 to remove the gill. Sort of like, hypothetically, there was a similar patch to CPython to do the same thing. And apparently it was really slow, and they just, uh, you know, decided not to go ahead with it. So, I mean, really, I don't think this is a bad thing, per se. I think uh, trying to take MRI and make it into a truly parallel multi-threaded virtual machine uh probably make it even more unstable than it is right now <laughs> right so, so basically oh sorry oh uh, i was just gonna say um so even on uh, ruby 193 uh p362 just came out and had a number of regressions with multi-thread programs that will make them just crash so uh, if you're using celluloid, you probably don't want to use that release of 193. <laughs> so. so we're down to using JRuby and Rubinius then. Yeah, so JRuby and Rubinius are definitely the two uh, most well-known, I think, uh, implementations of Ruby that run in parallel on multiple cores. Is, is, it my, uh, is my perception correct that a lot of the problem with the gill is from um, the fact that Ruby, that, that MRI keeps a lot of static, uh, static data? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's certainly a problem. Uh, and the C extension API is another huge problem, right? Uh, they've been working for years to <laughs> try to improve that in Rubinius. And, uh, cause you also can't, yeah. you also can't, uh, instantiate more than one instance of a Ruby interpreter in a process, right? Yeah, that's true. So they were trying to do this multi VM API that would give you, you know, multiple scripting containers pretty much and that mm-hmm. it, that went by the wayside i think that was something that, well, that was about i mean when, that found its way into mruby right uh yeah i think so uh i mean they have a really simple embedding api so i think it, it works kind of like lua where you can just run a separate interpreter per thread right i mean because that was what you would do in, in a language like like tickle or something is you could just you could just instantiate a new interpreter like you could instantiate as many interpreters as you wanted they were basically local you know, local to your to your thread or whatever. But um, yeah, my impression with Ruby was that just you know the way it had, the implementation was started out. It started out using a lot of C statics and and uh, you know uh, I guess you could almost you could almost compare it to uh, you know what happens to a Ruby app when you start out using a whole lot of class methods. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and then you know and you know fast forward fast forward five years or so, and you find yourself wanting to do have multiple instances of something and realizing that you're going to have to re-architect the entire application because of all the class methods. 
Yeah, I mean, so I don't know how much of an issue this actually is for one nine because I know originally Koichi planned on having this, you know, sort of multi VM support where you could have several scripting containers uh, in the same virtual machine and. You know, at one point they were even talking about a common API between MRI and JRuby and Rubinius. So you could spin up as many of these as you wanted in any of those VMs. And people just stopped caring. The whole thing went away. I don't know exactly what happened to it, but it was kind of planned from the start. They just never uh, actually finished it, I don't think. I still care. I think one of the reasons the Gil was introduced, just to kind of circle back to that, is because it does make C extension stuff easier, right? That that C extensions don't have to care if they're... Uh, Ruby doesn't have to be re-entrant as far as C extensions go. Is that right? Uh, that's right until you want them to work on Rubinius now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so they, uh, they added sort of... Uh, I mean, they, they got a lot of crazy stuff going on in Rubinius, right? So they have a copying garbage collector. So to make that work, they kind of have to have this uh, interaction mechanism between uh, the values of Ruby objects and where they actually live in memory. So on MRI, that's just like a pointer to like, this is where this object is in memory. And on Rubinius, they need to be able to move those around, you know, maybe at the same time your code's running, right? So... Yeah, I mean, it, it gets a little bit nuts as far as that stuff goes. But yeah, I mean, other than that, you know, I mean, originally the C extension API is definitely not designed for, uh, you know, different, you know, your code running in one thread and the uh, Ruby interpreter running in another really. So it's interesting in Rubinius, right? It's <laughs> a good point. So, okay, so we've talked about all these complexities and like why this is hard and then so we've mentioned celluloid a little bit why don't you tell us exactly what celluloid is what is it so celluloid uh i mean it is a little bit hard to explain because uh it's built on the actor model but the actual actor model uh is a little bit different from what celluloid exposes to you so celluloid is uh i i've been describing it as actor-based uh object-oriented concurrency so it's using the actor model underneath, but the API it presents to you is sort of an object-oriented API. And uh, if you're looking for an analog in something like uh, Erlang or Scala, it's closer to an Erlang gen server or uh, in Akka and Scala, there's uh, these things called type doctors, which are supposed to be the bridge between doing object-oriented stuff and doing actor stuff. So celluloid just gives you that, right? It just gives you these concurrent objects, and that's like the like fundamental primitive for building everything. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if you want me to keep going, but <laughs> well, there's like several different pieces to it, right? I watched yeah, your yeah. RubyConf talk recently, and you you talked about the different levels of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there's celluloid, and then there's a bunch of side projects that uh, sort of complement it. Um, so the other thing that really sets celluloid apart from other actor uh, libraries is uh, sort of uh, it has a sort of internal pipelining model where you can have uh, like inside of an actor, right? You can have several tasks going on at the same time. 
and these are actually modeled as uh, fibers. Uh, fibers are coroutines, right? So uh, the neat thing you can do is uh, take, um, you know, a single actor, and you can put a uh, I/O reactor, right? So the, uh, in uh, sort of high performance I/O, there's this idea of the reactor pattern, uh, implement stuff like a vent machine and node, right? So uh, celluloid is the subproject called celluloid I/O, where you can put a reactor inside of an actor and then have several of these coroutines kind of servicing uh, different I/O requests at the same time. So you can have uh, one actor, one native thread servicing, you know, thousands of connections. And you don't need to actually spin up a separate native thread for each uh, each of these connections you want to service, right? It's sort of like a hybrid of you know a multi-thread system with celluloid, and then uh, event-based system similar to Event Machine or Node.js. So, for example, that might be useful in managing a chat server or something where you had lots of you know people connecting to it all talking at various times and stuff and you could use the reactor to handle something like that yeah definitely like a chat server is a great example just because uh you know that's the sort of system where most of your connections are probably idle most of the time right so you you know may have a user who's you know gone to the store or something right they're not even looking at their computer so you probably don't uh, want to dedicate an entire native thread just to, uh, you know, waiting for them to get back from the store, basically. Uh, so yeah, you can definitely use it to build chat servers. I have one that I've really been meaning to finish. It uh, mostly works, but I wrote a uh, WebSocket-based chat server called RealTalk. Uh, Real, R-E-L, is uh, the web server I wrote for Celluloid. So uh, if you're looking for an example of doing that, uh, it's on my GitHub there. So you can check out Real Talk. <laughs> so can you explain a little the the what the principal mechanism for having actors for having different threads talk to each other? You know, uh, interthread communication in celluloid. Yeah. So the primitive is called a mailbox. Uh, like mailboxes or idea from the actor model. Uh, they're really similar to like in Go. Uh, there's channels that you use to talk between Go routines and the actor model. You have mailboxes to talk between actors. And uh, channels and mailboxes are really similar. Uh, the main difference is in the actor model, your mailbox is pinned to a single actor just the same way that you have a mailbox pinned to your front lawn, basically, right? So uh, if you have channels, you could potentially have multiple Go routines waiting for messages on the same channel. So you got to kind of figure out all the semantics in those cases. Uh, with a mailbox, it's sort of this many-to-one communication system, just like the postal mail, right? So uh, there's only one actor waiting on uh, a given mailbox at a time, and that mailbox belongs to that actor exclusively. Uh, sort of under the covers there right now, um, everything's just standard, uh, like mu- Ruby mutexes and condition variables. Uh, although I'd love to play with some of this, uh, at least on the JVM, there's a lot of neat stuff for making this sort of thing a lot faster. So there's all the stuff in Java util concurrent I'd like to start playing with to, uh, make some faster mailboxes on celluloid. 
That kind of brings up a good point. Do you do you recommend using celluloid more on the JVM since you do have native threads there and stuff like that and, and no go? Yeah, definitely. Like uh, JRuby is probably my main recommended platform for celluloid just because uh, the JVM is sort of like man centuries of, uh, you know, development effort and research into uh, being fast at running multi-threaded programs. Uh, so, you know, almost a decade ago, uh, the principal architect of uh, Hots- the Hotspot JIT compiler, uh, Cliff Click, left Sun to go work for this company, Azul, where they were building... Uh, massively, massively multi-core systems for running Java. Like they had 768 cores, uh, you know, up to 768 gigabyte heaps. So they had a single heap in this box. And uh, so, I mean, the JVM has run on some massively multi-core computers and it's really well tuned for it. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend checking out JRuby for uh, celluloid programs. So if I wanted to start playing around with celluloid, what would be some good weekend projects or starter projects? You know, some of these classical concurrency problems, I think, are a good way to start out, like uh, the dining philosopher's problem, for one. Uh, it's kind of one of the classical ones there. There's an example that uh, comes with celluloid. Uh, it's the cigarette smoker's pro- uh, problem. It's sort of similar to the dining philosophers problem, but there are a couple more actors involved in the, uh, in the system. So, uh, yeah, basically I would say pick one, you know, if you're specifically interested in, uh, the multi-core or not multi-core, sorry, uh, just like, you know, solving, uh, concurrent problems effectively, uh, yeah, check out, you know, basically look up any of these classical problems and try to implement with celluloid. What are some really bad starter projects? What things to avoid? I don't know. A lot of people get on the mailing list and they really love the idea. And they're like, I want to build a framework to do really crazy distributed uh, computing problems. And, you know, how do I get started on this? And I'm kind of like, well, maybe before you go off and write a framework, you might want to write something a little more self-contained. <laughs> you know, you might want to... uh Try to start small, I guess, and not, uh, you know, shoot for the moon right off the bat there or something. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, concurrency is harder to think about, right? I know whenever I'm, I'm doing something that, that has to be concurrent, even if it's, you know, fairly simple, you know, where I, I, I don't really, you know, have to communicate between the pieces or stuff like that. I, I really have to stop and think about, you know, how, how does this happen? What are the order of events and stuff like that, right? It takes something to get your head around, kind of. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it's like super easy or celluloid, like gets rid of all the headaches of concurrency or anything like that. Um, you know, I think it does take, you know, it's something you just got to get in there and start playing with it. Uh, and wrap your head around it before, uh, I, I think it gets easier with time. Uh, some people seem to disagree, but, uh, you know, um, I, I started writing multi-thread programs in C in like the late nineties. So I, I guess I've been doing this for a while, but, uh, 
yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying it's an, it's uh, super easy by any stretch of the imagination, but I think with celluloid, it's a lot easier than doing it in uh, other languages that maybe don't offer an actor-like abstraction. So is, you know, do you think with celluloid and stuff, we're getting to a point where in Ruby, we can write programs much like they do in, in Node.js or Erlang? Do you think we're we're on par competing with that or, or do we still have a ways to go? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, one of the foremost projects using celluloid is uh, Adhesion, which is a telephony framework for Ruby. Uh, so that's sort of similar to what Erlang was originally conceived for, which was uh, they wanted a language for developing uh, you know, PBX software at Ericsson. So you know, I'm not saying celluloid solves all the same problems that Erlang did. Uh, you know, they wanted to have zero downtime. Uh, they wanted to have a really, really uh, consistent system with very strong, rigid guarantees on, uh, you know, mutation state and things like that. But you know, from a practical perspective, I don't know how much of that is actually necessary to build useful programs. You know, Erlang's philosophy is sort of let it crash. Your program is going to have bugs, that kind of thing. So I think as long as you can carry that spirit over, which is sort of uh, the main thing they've done in Akka, which is probably the other biggest uh, sort of Erlang clone out there, uh, as long as people are building programs around that idea, as long as you actually can let your threads crash and uh have a system to recover, uh, get you back in a consistent state when that happens. Uh, yeah, I think Ruby is, you know, a great language for building concurrent programs in. You mentioned Adhesion. What are some other um, projects that are using Celluloid? Uh, so Sidekick would be the other big one. Uh, Sidekick's a multi-threaded job execution engine similar to Rescue. Uh, it's kind of funny because I've been doing a lot of open source uh, work on Rescue lately. But, uh, you know, I would probably, if you're doing uh, new stuff today, I would probably recommend Sidekick over Rescue. Uh, just because, yeah, I mean, it's got a pretty big community around it now doing uh, multi-threaded job worker stuff. So, um, yeah, definitely check out Sidekick as well. And you could totally run this on Heroku. Uh, yeah, uh, people have had various issues running Sidekick on Heroku, but in general, I think it works okay. We um, switched to Sidekick recently at work, and I don't have the exact numbers, but you can definitely see a performance difference in being able to fire up those threads and not needing uh, so many processes. It's definitely uh, more efficient, for sure. Yeah, yeah, awesome. So, um, are there other things you would like to do with Celluloid down the road? Um, so I'm, I have a side project going, uh, I'm trying to write like a peer to peer cloud storage system, which is a pretty complicated problem, right? But, uh, this is actually sort of like the next generation of the project that, uh, kicked off, uh, all my other projects that, uh, have had to do with concurrency. So back in 2006, I was working with the uh, senior project team at uh, uh, University of Colorado to write this sort of peer-to-peer uh, file transfer system, and we were building it on top of Event Machine. 
So that's kind of uh, where I ceased to like Event Machine. I mean, I contributed to uh, I contributed to it a little bit, but uh, you know, the more I looked at the source code of Event Machine, the more sort of WTFs per second uh, were happening there. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, basically, I didn't think it was really practical to build a large, complicated concurrent program on top of Event Machine. And uh, now that I've, you know, to loop, kind of loop back on that, now that I have celluloid, now that there are all these uh, sort of fundamental components in place, I'm trying to uh, write a new peer-to-peer system with it. So we'll see how that goes, I guess. You mentioned earlier that you have a, um, a web server that you wrote in celluloid, so we can actually run Rails on top of that? Uh, people have tried, uh, the problem is celluloid uses fibers for its sort of internal pipelining and fibers and rack do not get along very well, at least on MRI. Uh, a few people have tried to run rails on it though. It does have a rack adapter and, uh, you can attempt to run rails on top of real if you want to, um, you know, I'll I'll see how much success people report on uh, like JRuby and Rubinius, where it doesn't really have those fiber limitations. But uh, I don't really know of anybody using, say, Rails on top of Celluloid in production or anything, right? So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I've actually seen you talk about uh, Rack before, and and uh, and talk about the problems there. You want to give us a quick overview of why that doesn't mix so well? Uh, so, uh, yeah, let's see. So there was this other web server, Goliath, uh, that was trying to do something similar with fibers, basically, where it would expose, uh, synchronous APIs that were kind of like the ones you're used to, the ones that were great with multi-thread programs. I was trying to expose this on top of a vent machine. And use fibers to do that. And uh, one of the things people ran into was the fact that fibers only have a four kilobyte stack. And that's pretty small. Uh, so your uh, average uh, rack middleware on your, you know, your typical Rails new uh, type application, right? Like the kind the generator will spit out is pretty huge. Like uh, each piece of rack middleware you add adds another stack frame. So this is kind of a uh, design flaw, I think, in the way rack middleware works. Like maybe it should iterate across your middlewares instead of building them up on your stack or something like that. But basically, unless you pull some of your middlewares out, you can exceed that four kilobyte limit on the fiber stacks. And uh, then your app is going to crash. So, uh, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't recommend uh, mixing Rails and Celluloid for that reason. But, you know, it, uh, on JRuby, uh, Fiber's mapped to native threads, so there's not a problem there. And on Rubinius, uh, every Fiber is a large stack. It's I, I don't know exactly how big they are, but they're certainly larger than 4K, so it's pretty nice. That's interesting. Let's see, do we have any other questions? I've got one more. Um, and it's not like directly related to the, the threading in the celluloid, but if um, if people wanted to help you develop these things, what, what are the sort of the things where you'd like to have some help? 
Uh, so generally where I've seen a lot of people jumping in is like, uh, they're writing an app and there's some feature they want that they don't have. And, uh, you know, I'm getting pull requests for that. So people are just kind of adding the stuff they need that isn't already there. Like, uh, just yesterday I got a PR to do, uh, sort of a, a implicit supervision hierarchy. So right now, if you want to uh, take advantage of the sort of let it fail stuff, the error handling stuff in celluloid, you got to explicitly link everything together. And uh, in other, in, in Akka, right, in uh, this other framework for Scala, you're just like, you make a new actor, you are the supervisor for the new actor. So every time you make a new actor, like the parent actors uh, supervise their children, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's a pretty cool idea and I got a PR for it, uh, just the other day. So pretty much, uh, yeah, most of the stuff is people kind of self-identifying their own needs and contributing that way. Is there anything you'd wish for? Like if you could wish for something? Um, so there's this really cool thing in Akka called the type safe console, which is this giant dashboard of all sorts <laughs> of metrics about, uh, your Akka programs. So I think something like that would be really helpful for uh, both debugging uh, celluloid programs and sort of doing performance tuning. So yeah, uh, that'd be great. Uh, it's not there yet. I wish we can uh, kind of catch up to Akka on some of this stuff. Cool. That's, um, you talk a lot about the let it crash philosophy, and let me see if I can articulate this well, but... Um, in the past, when I've had to write, like, say, a daemon that runs for a really, really long time and, and just forever in Ruby, the best way I've found to do that is, uh, you know, set up a very minimal loop at the top, you know, over some set of tasks. And then whatever task I want to do, fork a process and do all my work in there and then uh, let that process go away. And the reason I, I landed on that is... Um, one exit is like the ultimate GC, right? <laughs> and that, and that, you know, Ruby programs can balloon and get big as you quit, you know, get a bunch of objects from the database and stuff like that, right? And, um, and then that memory doesn't tend to get released back over time. And, and, uh, so you can just kind of end up in these states. So if I separated out another process and did that work and then, you know, when that process exit, then it's it's like I didn't have that problem anymore. And that was how I was able to, to build programs that ran such a long time. If you go with a, a heavy threading model or stuff, how do you deal with those kinds of circumstances? Uh, so it's definitely not easy, um, you know, especially, you know, you're talking about uh, dealing with things like memory leaks and that kind of thing. The um, only is just to be clear, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a leak, right? It's, yeah, yeah. You could just do like a big query and get a bunch of data for something you do infrequently, a report that's generated once a day, right? But once yeah, you yeah. allocated those resources, then you don't get those back really, right? Yeah, I mean, well, you don't until the GC runs, basically, right? Right, um, but, then, but then your program still has that larger memory space. I don't believe Ruby actually ends up releasing that memory back to the kernel. Is that right? I may be wrong there. Uh, so basically, you're saying the uh, the heap grows over time. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
Uh, this is again where if this is really an issue, you definitely want to be using JRuby where, uh, you know, the JVM is like 10 different garbage collectors you can choose from. And, uh, actually the JVM can shrink the heap if it decides, uh, you know, basically that there's so much extra space inside the heap that it wants to release some back to the kernel. It can definitely do that. Uh, offhand, I don't know about uh, MRI per se, uh, whether it can do that. You know, I'm used to, uh, you know, typically having a fairly high allocation rate in the app side debug. So that, that isn't usually a problem that comes up for me where, uh, you know, something uses a bunch of RAM, like, you know, for w- some one off thing, right? And then it stops using a bunch of RAM for a while and, you know, it might be useful to release that memory back. Um, yeah, I mean, most of the programs I deal with just allocate, 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 right? So, <laughs> yeah, I'd, you know, um, I'd say use the JVM if you'd like to have that uh, ability there. That kind of leads to one last question. I guess we can probably close on. What would be your list of advice for people getting into concurrent programming? You know, are there are there certain things you would recommend? Just go this way. It really helps. Like it sounds like from this conversation that we've had, one of the top tips is probably switch to the JVM, you know, switch to JRuby because you've got, you know, better garbage collection choices, you know, native threads, uh, no gill, that kind of thing. Um, what other tips? I mean, uh, should everybody start at celluloid, uh, you know, or yeah. What tips do you have for concurrent programming? Um, I mean, so to go along with the JVM in general, there's a really cool and free, uh, debugger for the JVM. Not really a debugger, but a, uh, visualization tool, I guess, called Visual VM. And, uh, one of the main things Visual VM offers is a, uh, real time view of what every thread in the system is doing, right? So you can, uh, sort of see a picture of like these threads are running, these threads are sleeping. Uh, you can get a thread dump, there's like a little thread dump button. So you can get a dump of all their stacks and, uh, see what they're actually doing. Uh, and so Visual VM is definitely a really handy tool for kind of seeing what's going on in your multi-threaded program. Let's see. Yeah, additional advice as far as uh, should you start with celluloid or should you start with the native Ruby thread API? I'd say probably do a little bit of both, right? <laughs> like, uh, it'd be good if you know you played around with Ruby threads and kind of figured out how they work. And I think uh, this is something where there isn't a good resource uh, right now. It's kind of how do I do. Uh, multi-thread programming with all the stuff built into the standard library, which there's actually a ton of stuff. Like I'm still discovering stuff after, you know, years of doing this. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I wish there were kind of a better resource for getting started with multi-thread programming, uh, with the Ruby standard library and maybe eventually I'll write something like that. I don't know. We'll see. Are there any good resources for other languages just to help get your brain wrapped around the whole idea of concurrent programming? Yeah, there are uh, several books uh, about the uh, JVM specifically. Um, try to think. Uh, I, I read a good one from the Pragmatic Programmers. I'm, I forget the exact name. I think it's called Concurrent Programming on the JVM. That way, Yeah, I mean, it covers uh, all the stuff in Java Util Concurrent, right? So there are 
these really neat things called lock-free data structures on the JVM where uh, you can try to get and set values and say a concurrent hash map and none of that will ever block because it's all uh, it's all synchronized uh, using sort of these uh, using things like spin locks and that kind of thing where uh, you know you're not actually acquiring a mutex so it's really fast several threads can access it at the same time and they're not going to be contended on a mutex so definitely check out uh, some of these JVM books I would say all right. Well, thanks, Tony. That was uh, just a ton of like crazy useful info. Should we? Yeah, some, yeah. Should we do some picks? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, Avdi, you want to go first? Mm, I don't have a lot this week. Um, I saw a funny show last night. Uh, there's a a Hulu original series called Spy, and uh, it's it's I, I guess it's an English show. It's it's all English accents and. And uh, it's kind of got that dry humor going, and I don't know. It was fun. If you if you watch Hulu, look it up. Spy. Katrina. Uh, yeah, sure. The other day, uh, I was pair programming with one of my colleagues, and um, I did a commit, and he asked me, "Why did your camera go on?" And so this is a Bash script I wrote based on a program called Image Snap, and it just snaps an image, snaps a picture using your webcam every time you commit. Um, so that's a lot of fun. I've been doing collecting these uh, pictures from every commit for months, and it's actually pretty hilarious because you can see me starting out in the evening, um, and then like a whole series of commits where the last one I'm practically asleep. Um, so that's just a gist. And then the other um, pick that I have is your logical fallacy is dot com, which is very useful in these times of great debates. And that's all I've got. I love that site. <laughs> okay, so I have a few picks I'll do just quickly here. In playing with concurrency a little bit, one of the things I've played with quite a bit recently is StatsD, uh, which is this uh, daemon service that uh, you can send just stats to it over a UDP socket, which means it's uh, usually quite a bit quicker than your typical connection uh, and when you're gathering stats uh, that's usually really important because you don't want to drag your uh, system to its knees. It's a, a server invented by Etsy I think and they talk a lot about how they use it but anyways there's a great Ruby client for it uh, that makes it easy to play with and stuff um, so I recommend checking that out. And then uh, recently, uh, in, in the normal world, I find myself uh, in meetings all of a sudden, which is uh, not something I've done recently, and meetings that are uh, big and, and involving a lot of debate over issues and stuff like that. So uh, we're using Robert's Rules of Order. Um, and I found this great book that's made uh, by the body that maintains Robert's Rules of Order, uh, but it's really small uh kind of quick cliff notes version has is almost what it feels like uh which is really nice because the big robert's rules manual is like 700 pages and uh this one's just like 180 and i read it in about four hours or so so uh, it's really great intro for most of the stuff you need to like participate in meetings like that um also on the meeting front uh the consensus building tools are are pretty helpful um, and this is a pretty neat one I've run into lately called Fist to Five, uh, 
Um, and it's about how everybody holds up a fist or so many fingers and that tells you, you know, their position on if they have major objections or minor objections and stuff like that. And that tells you who to, who to take the discussion to next and, and, uh, those kinds of things. Really good for, uh, helping a group, uh, reach, uh, consensus much faster. So those are some tools I've found helpful in, uh, meetings I'm now in. Uh, Tony, what about your picks? So I've got a uh, couple of concurrency related things here. Um, so the first one was what I alluded to earlier uh, for immutable state. Uh, it's called Hamster. It's efficient, immutable, thread safe collection classes for Ruby. So what these are are uh, immutable, persistent data structures. And persistent means not that they're written to disk, but that Basically, when you make a new version, right, when you would normally mutate, it sort of shares parts of the old one. So it's really efficient. Uh, you know, whenever you want to change something, it just changes the little pieces that uh, you actually want to modify and everything else gets shared with the older version. So this is it's sort of like Scala Z for Ruby, basically, if you're uh, if you've ever heard of Scala Z. But it's got uh, immutable sets, lists, uh, stacks, keys, and vectors. Uh, so these uh, would go great with Celluloid for uh, building uh, concurrent programs. And then the other one I have, uh, this is from Charlie Nutter of the JRuby project. He made a library called Cloby. And what Cloby does is take the uh, closure software transactional memory uh, engine effectively and let's use in Ruby. And what you can do is extend, uh, Cloby on any Ruby object and then you get, uh, transactional semantics on instance variables. So you could have several threads potentially you're trying to modify an object at the same time, but you get transactional semantics, right? So, uh, all these modifications you're making are happening in big groups. And uh, if you throw an exception, I believe it's going to roll back and none of your modifications will actually happen. So there's uh, two neat libraries to check out if you're trying to build concurrent programs in Ruby. Awesome. And did you mention earlier that there's a mailing list for Celluloid, right? Uh, there is. There's a Google group. Uh, it's just Celluloid-Ruby is the name of the Google group. Uh, so hopefully uh, you can find it there. Probably pretty helpful for people digging into this kind of stuff. So. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thanks, Tony, very much again for coming and talking to us and uh, talking to us about all this kind of complicated stuff. We appreciate it. I think yeah, no problem. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up this episode. Um, you can find us or leave us a review on iTunes, and we will see you next week.